Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you once again for the word that you have given to us today. And we thank you that we could come and to be in your house with your people to hear it sung and to hear it prayed and to hear it read and, and now to hear it preached. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you that we could revisit over and over uh, the Christmas story each and every year to, to be reminded of uh, your great salvation that you have given to your people. And Lord, I know that while we hear it often, and like I said, every year, um, Lord, we need to internalize it. We need to, to truly hear it. And so we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives today to give us ears to hear, that we might receive it by faith. And Lord, that we might rejoice, that we might have joy, O oh God, because what it is that not only you have done in the past in sending your Son, but you continue to do each and every day in our lives as we trust you and as we see your work in our lives to make us more like you. Lord, that you compel us to go and to tell others of who you are. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and just pray for a mighty work uh, of your hand in our lives and in our church. We thank you and pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I don't know if anybody else is tired this morning or not, but the holidays are, are great times, but it's sometimes long hours and a lot of time with family, which is a good thing. Uh, but sometimes it is very exhausting. But I hope you had a, a good time over the holidays and you got a chance to, to maybe uh, fulfill some of your, your holiday traditions and stuff. And I don't know, maybe you watched some of uh, the sort of the classics, movie classics, like It's a Wonderful Life or maybe The Grinch Stole Christmas if you have little kids or, or White Christmas or something like that. I don't know. But you know, it just seems like those old classics never get old. We could, even though maybe we've watched them a hundred times or it feels like we've watched them a hundred times, you know, you turn off the TV and you're sort of thinking, you know what, that's awesome. I just like that movie, you know. It never grows old. And, and this year, you know, we've been looking at the songs of Christmas. And we call them the songs of Christmas. They're not really technically songs. Uh, those that that spoke them, really spoke them. They didn't sing them, but they're done sort of in a poetic fashion. And so over these years and over the centuries, they have often been put to song. And so we call them the, the songs of Christmas. And, and this morning, we're going to look at the last of the four of the songs of Christmas. We've looked at Mary's song. We've looked at Zachariah's song. We've looked at the song of the angels. And now we're going to look at Simeon's song. And to look at why it is that Christ came to, to earth. And the first thing I want us to notice this morning is, is that Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill the law. Uh, look at verses 21 and, and following. And, and we see that even from his very infancy, infancy, he fulfilled the law of God. Note, notice how many times in verses 21 and following it mentions the law. And at the end of eight days... When he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, that's twice, every male 
who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord three times, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And then skip down to verse 27. And he came in the spirit, this is Simeon, into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law and then down in verse 39 and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth now we could be pretty dense and still understand that this has something to do with the law of the Lord right because he just keeps repeating it kids if your parents keep telling you something over and over and over and over they want you to get whatever it is that they're saying. And Luke does sort of the same thing with us. And, and there's really two scenes that we see here as we think about Jesus fulfilling the law. The first scene has to do with Mary and Joseph having their son circumcised in verse 21. And it was customary uh, as the son was being circumcised that he would also receive his name, that that would be declared. And we sort of saw that as we looked at John the Baptist as well, as he's oftentimes referred to. And and so as Mary and Joseph presents Jesus for circumcision, they call his name Jesus, which was the name that the angel gave to actually each, both Joseph and Mary separately before Jesus was born. To Joseph in Matthew one twenty one, and in Mary, uh, Luke one thirty one. And, and as we saw with John, that name is important. John means God is merciful. And, and God, oftentimes when he is about to work with his people, as he is about to reveal himself, he does so oftentimes through the names of the people that, that he places to, and chooses to work through in carrying out his salvation. And, and it's no less the case with Jesus, because Jesus means the Lord saves and that's what Jesus came to do. He came to save his people. And so after Jesus was named, then he received the sign of the covenant. Now, circumcision had been given to Abraham and to his children and to their children and all the way down. And every male descendant of Abraham would have been circumcised. And so Jesus' family, like countless others across the ages, were, were simply obeying the commandments that we read in Leviticus chapter 12 and verse 3, that the sign of the covenant should be administered after eight days. Now, it wasn't a remarkable scene. It was actually rather mundane and, and ordinary. Uh, no one would have looked at Mary and Joseph and Jesus and gone, look! The Messiah is here. He's being circumcised because hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, I don't know how many kids there were, uh, had been, and sons had been circumcised. But we do know that this is just not just any child uh, or any descendant of Abraham. He is the son of Abraham to whom the, common, the covenant promises pointed. If you remember, God said to his people, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will provide a way of salvation. I will send to you a Messiah, a anointed one, who will come and who will save my people. And so, you know, Christ was that promise. He was the fulfillment of that promise. And he is, and if you could say, he is the covenant child, right? Uh, but also the fact that the sign was given to Jesus showed that he was one 
with his covenant people. He identified with them. And so it's no wonder that when Simeon saw Christ and it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that this is the Messiah that, that you see in this prayer, this uh, prophecy that he gives a lot of, of rejoicing, uh, relief, rest, sort of satisfaction, sort of that sense of completion. You know, he says, now I can rest. Now I can go and be with the Lord. So that's sort of the first scene is Christ's circumcision. But the second we see is Mary and Joseph taking Jesus to the temple in, verses, in verse 22. Now, oftentimes we read these almost as if they happen simultaneously. But actually, yeah, we're fast forwarding about five weeks down the road. Okay, so we have his, his circumcision. And then about five weeks later, uh, Mary and Joseph take Jesus into the temple. And they do so for a couple of reasons. First of all, for Mary's purification. Okay, according to the law of Moses, a woman who gave birth to a son was ceremonially unclean for 40 days after birth. For a girl, only two weeks. But for a boy, they were unclean for 40 days after birth. And, and uh, if you want, you're welcome to look at Leviticus chapter 12, because that's where uh, all this comes from. Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. But at the end of those 40 days, she was to bring an offering to the priest as a sin offering to make atonement for her. Because she was considered unclean, uh, there had to be atonement made for her that she might re-enter the covenant community, that she might come and, and to worship once again in the tabernacle or, or the temple. And so she would bring a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering. And, and then she would also bring a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And the priest would offer those offerings before the Lord. But God, in his grace, he made provision uh, for maybe a woman who was too poor to afford a lamb. And so if that was the case, rather than bringing a lamb and a turtle dove or a lamb and a pigeon, she could bring two pigeons or she could bring two turtle doves. And that's where Mary and Joseph were. At that time, I don't know if they were, were poor all the time, but at this time they couldn't afford a lamb. And so they brought two pigeons to the priest. And, and the priest would offer the sacrifice and make atonement for the sin of the mother. It, it was a symbolic way to say that sin passes from generation to generation. And therefore it requires cleansing and atonement and purification. And, and, and that's not new to us if we really think about it. I mean, David talked about that in a psalm that we're all familiar with. In Psalm 51, David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, the difference here is, is that Jesus was sinless. You know, the sin was not passed on. You know, we oftentimes think about some of the doctrines that we believe in that sometimes the world attacks and, and we think, well, we ought not to squabble over these things. But the, the truths that God gives us in his word are important. And one of those is the virgin birth. The fact that, that, uh, that Joseph is not the father. And it's been said that it's believed that that sin is passed down through the father as by Adam. And therefore, since, since Jesus was not conceived by Joseph, Therefore, that sin is not passed along. But Jesus was sinless. But the reality is, is that we are not. We are sinners by nature. And we sin because we are sinners. We're not simply sinners because we sin. And so atonement is necessary. 
And, and that's why Mary was there in the temple to receive the emblems and the symbols of forgiveness and cleansing and, and pardon. And, and it's precisely at this point in Luke's account that we begin to notice that sweet, rich gospel irony as you think about it. I mean, here is Mary and Joseph. They're walking up to the temple. They give the sacrifices to the priest and the priest is preparing those and the priest offers that sacrifice uh, for Mary. At the same time, who is she holding? Yeah, she's, she's holding her son. She's, she's holding Jesus. But in her arms, she's holding the child whose own blood is the meaning of the sacrifice that she is offering. That he is the one whose blood will truly take away her sins. It's not the sins of those pigeons that will do that. And so here she is. She can't afford to bring a lamb, but yet she brings the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The true significance of what's taking place that morning in the temple would only find its full and clear explanation at Calvary when her child would shed his blood, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. Cleansing comes by Jesus Christ alone, as the word says, who knew no sin, who became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus makes us clean. He is the great Christmas gift. Kids, I don't care what you got for Christmas. It does not hold a candle to the fact that Jesus is our really ultimate Christmas gift. And we come this morning to rejoice in that. That the stain of guilt and sin, the sting of shame, is washed away and purified and cleansed by the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you. But I can recall in my life and think of times of ways that I have sinned against God in which I cannot explain it any other way than to say that I feel shame. I just think, Lord, if, if people only knew that I said those things or I acted that way or I had that attitude or the motive of my heart was that and other people found out, I would be ashamed. And, and to thank God that you do know that. And as I come to realize that and think that one day I will stand before you and all of my sins will be exposed, I cannot help but think of the shame that I will feel, uh, that I feel before you. But what's interesting is, is that not only do we feel that shame, but even that, that guilt of our sin. And, and to think that the stain of our guilt is taken away. I don't know about you, but having seven kids in our family, we had a few stains in our house, okay? And there were, there were times when, you know, there were stains in the carpet or in the sofa or the chair or whatever. There were stains everywhere, it seemed like. And, you know, sometimes you just work and work and work and work. And the one thing about a stain is it doesn't come out easily. And sometimes it doesn't come out at all. And that's our sin. That's what our sin does. The guilt of our sin, it, it, it is that stain of our sin that, that stays with us. But I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you have worked and worked and worked and worked on a stain to try to get that what to to try to uh, get that out of whatever wherever the stain is, and you just can't do it. And then you have a friend who says, "Hey, have you ever tried?" And they they tell you about this miracle product, and you spray this on the stain, and guess what? Boom! It comes right out, and you're like, "Yes, Hallelujah! We got rid of that stain." That's 
what Jesus' blood does for us. We can work and work and work and work all we want to try to remove the stain of our sin. And we can do nothing. But Jesus' blood is, 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 the, is, is what cleanses us, what purifies us. He is the ultimate source of cleansing. Well, the other reason that Mary and Joseph went into the temple was not just for Mary's purification, but to also present Jesus to God. Uh, that he was, Jesus was to be consecrated. In that same passage in Leviticus chapter 12, uh, we read how the son, the first son that opens the womb, must also be presented to the Lord. And in verses 22 and 23, here in Luke, we see that Jesus is presented to the Lord. Excuse me, I said that Leviticus passage. Actually, it's found in Exodus chapter 13, verse 2. Okay, in Exodus 13, 2, we read, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And of course, this is the Lord that's speaking. And what's significant about this is this happens right after the Passover. And you remember that with the Passover, every firstborn child and animal died, right? Unless the doorway was covered with the blood of the lamb. Then, if that was the case, then, then the, the angel of death passed over. And the Lord says, you know, that uh, every firstborn child and animal belongs to God. And so parents were to acknowledge God's sovereignty by redeeming their sons with a sacrifice. We see that later on in Exodus 13. 13. Um, and that sacrifice was offered not long after that child was born. So when parents presented their child to God, they were setting them apart for his service. And little did Mary and Joseph know that as they came to present Jesus, to consecrate him to the Lord, to set him apart, that from the very beginning of his life, that Jesus fulfilled all righteousness by keeping God's law. And so we are saved by Christ's death on the cross, and we talk a lot about that at church, that we were saved by his death. But we are also saved by his life as well, in which he fulfilled all the righteousness that we owe to God. And Christ's righteous life is imputed to his people that as we stand before God, not only are our sins taken away, but as God sees us as his children, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now think about that in light of the stain of your sin and the guilt and the shame that we feel because of our sin. That's not how God views us. If we are trusting in Him, He sees us in, in Christ's righteousness. So Christ came to fulfill the law, but He also came to bring comfort as well. Uh, when Jesus was presented at the temple, two godly old saints were waiting to receive him. Now, we're only going to look at one today, and that's Simeon. But Anna was there as well. But let's look at S Simeon. Look at verse 25. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation, that is, for the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it was had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents uh, brought in the child 
Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. Now, I, one thing that I've noticed, this is sort of a side note, not part of my point that I'm necessarily going to make, but look at the number of times that you see the work of the Holy Spirit here. In just these few verses, there's like three times that it's mentioned the Holy Spirit. And if you go back and you look at Mary or Elizabeth or John, you see that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. It would be an interesting study just to look at the work of the Holy Spirit on the first Christmas morning. And you very much see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all at work on that first Christmas. That's just no extra charge for that. It's just amazing to see that and to see God at work. But the main thing we know about Simeon is his character. He was a righteous and a godly man. He was waiting for the coming of Christ. He believed that God would comfort his people. And, and by a special promise that was given to him, he knew that one day he would see God's anointed, that is his Messiah, before he closed his eyes in death. And so Simeon rejoiced, and by the revelation of the Holy Spirit, when he saw Jesus, you know, he, he uh, prophesied what was going to happen uh, in Jesus. And it's interesting that the Holy Spirit brought Simeon to the temple at that very moment when Joseph and Mary were presenting Christ. And this is what he prophesies in verse 29. Lord, now... Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. So God has called Simeon to watch and to wait for the coming Messiah. And now Simeon's eyes have finally seen the glory of God's anointed. And notice what he says. Not only is Jesus the fulfillment of God's word to Simeon and the fulfillment of God's promise to our fathers and to Abraham, but he is also God's final climactic word to the world. Look at verse 32. Jesus is a light for revelation. He is a light for revelation. Now, turn, if you would, to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. We're going to look at a couple of passages. But, but really, as, as he is giving this prophecy, he is referring back to Isaiah a lot. And I'll stay in Isaiah 42, but while you're turning there, let me just read from Isaiah, or, uh, Isaiah chapter 9. We read that Jesus is the one in whom... The people who walk in darkness would see a great light, right? We're all familiar with that passage. But then in Isaiah 42, 6, Isaiah 42, 6, he says, I will give you as a covenant for the peoples a light for the nations to open eyes that are blind. And then uh, and turn over to Isaiah 49, verse 6. So we're going from Isaiah 42, 6 to Isaiah 49, 6. And we read, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And then one more, if you'll turn to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60, turn towards the end of the book and we'll look at verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 60, 1 through 3. He says, Arise! Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. 
The Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. You know, the truth is, is that Isaiah has been telling and, and Simeon knows this by nature that we as humanity walk in darkness. But Jesus Christ is this light that Isaiah has been talking about that penetrates and pierces the darkness. You see, by nature, we don't know the truth. Even though for some reason, we oftentimes feel very comfortable to go on our gut instinct. Do we not? You know, or we operate off of our feelings or what we think is right. But the reality is we don't know as well as we think we know. And oftentimes when we function off of our gut instinct rather than what God has revealed to us, we actually create way more of a, of a mess. But Jesus is divine revelation. Uh, a light for revelation to the nations. We see here both to the Gentiles, but also to the Israelites as well. So he comes to bring salvation to all people. Even though we are spiritually deaf, Jesus is the word who makes us hear. Uh, what does Hebrews 1, 1 say? In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, Right? He is revealed to us himself by his son. Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory to his people, Israel. So he is the climax and the fulfillment, not just of the symbols of the ceremonies of the law, as we saw in the covenant, the cleansing and consecration, all of that. But he's also the climax of prophecy, the summation of revelation, which is another way to say that God has unveiled himself and his son that we might know him, right? So if we want to know God, we do so as we come to Jesus and we walk with him. So God has come down on earth to live among us that we may know him. And Jesus, this Jesus who is the light, he is being carried that morning into the temple um, that he might be um, the final sacrifice, that he might... Uh, the, the sacrifices that are made, that he it be known that he is the, the final sacrifice, that he is our God, that he loves us, that he gives himself to us to draw us to himself, that Jesus is God's invitation to come and to know him for ourselves. You see, you see God, I see God, we see God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, what did Jesus tell his disciples? If you want to see, you know, why do you ask to see the Father? I am the Father. Uh, Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. So God's last final great word to us comes in Jesus Christ. Everything he would say to you is found in Christ. So if we seek to know God, we do so as we come to Christ. So he is with us and he is walking with us, much like Adam as he walked with him in the cool of the day. And this salvation or this light that he speaks of, as we see in verse 31, is for all peoples, for Gentiles as much as it is for Jews. And brothers and sisters, this is the, the basis for our evangelistic outreach around the world, that Jesus is God's light to the nations. We don't do evangelism or witnessing because that's what Presbyterian churches do, right? We worship, we disciple, and we witness, right? And that's just what we do, so let's get at it. 
There's actually a much greater motivation than this, that it is that God is at work shedding his light to the nations. I mean, I know that if you took a globe and you looked at the earth from far enough away, you'd see half of it is light where the light shines and half of it is dark. But imagine if you could that all of the earth was dark and then all of a sudden there was a light and then there's another light and that light begins to dispel the darkness and and to drive it away. That is what is happening with the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus has come to dispel the darkness, to shine the light of salvation into every dark corner of every dim heart. And it's because of him that we have a gospel that we can take to the nations and to everyone. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? Do we, do we understand that this just isn't a task that we're supposed to do and so we sort of decide if we want to do it or not. God is doing this. And he says to his church, I am doing this through you. So my question for us is, is does the gospel in any way inform and compel us day to day? As, as we passionately pray, are, excuse me, are we passionately praying that the light of Christ would dispel the darkness in our communities? Are you aggressively praying for your communities? Are, are, are you praying for your neighborhoods? Are you praying for the people on your street that the light of Jesus Christ would be seen? What about your workplace? What about your families? Brothers and sisters, as we think not just about a new year, but just about our calling as Christians, are we expecting and anticipating a work of God in our midst? Or are we too satisfied to just expect nothing but business as usual at Kirk of the Plains? That, you know, maybe if we can get a few more people to come to our church, if we can just meet our budget, if we can just sort of go on day by day, we're good. Or are we expecting God to work mightily and to bring comfort to a people and to see the gospel of Jesus Christ spread? Well, the third thing we see in this passage is, is that you know, Jesus came not only to fulfill the law and to bring comfort to his people, but Jesus also came to suffer. Look at verses 34 and 35. You know, as Mary and Joseph heard these words, uh, they were amazed, you know, at this global vision that was given, even if they didn't understand it. And actually, if you look back at verse 33, it says, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. But then Simeon drew sort of a blade that pierced Mary's heart. He uttered a prophecy in 34 and 35, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. You see, with these words, Simeon offered the first hint of the great suffering that Jesus would have to endure. And he even says that Jesus will be a sign that is opposed in verse 34. The people will despise Jesus and they will reject him and they will take their stand against him. And of course, this culminated in them nailing him to the cross and then leaving him to die. 
This is the sword that would pierce Mary's heart, that despite her joy at giving birth to her son and her excitement about that, that the day would come when she would suffer a grief of such anguish that it would strike to the very heart and core of her being. Because you see, Simeon, was his prophecy was showing that from the very beginning that God had a mission that would require Jesus to suffer and to die for sinners. That was his preordained plan. But, but not everyone would be saved. He says in verse 34 and 35, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You see, Jesus came... Um, and in doing so, he exposes what is truly in our hearts. And, and if we are truly humbled by sin, then we will see our need of grace. We will be drawn to Jesus, who will then make us rise to glory. Now, that word that's translated rise can actually be translated resurrection. We'll be resurrected um, or lifted up. Um, the glory, but yet we know that some people will refuse to be humbled by their sin and they will stand proud not recognizing their own sin, thinking that they can make it on their own. And some, even offended by the idea that salvation only comes through Jesus Christ on the cross. And for them, Christ gets in the way. He's something that they have to get around, something that they trip over, if you would. And that's what Simeon meant when he said that Jesus would be the fall of many in Israel. He would be, as Paul says, a stumbling block because people didn't want to come to God through Jesus Christ. They didn't want to do it God's way. They wanted to do it their own way. And although some would receive him by faith, others would reject him in unbelief. And that's just the way it's always been. And so when people truly understand the claims of Christ, most of them are scandalized. And maybe that's what we see as Christians sometimes. We see so many people whose hearts are hardened and we share the gospel and people push back and they really don't desire to hear it. And so we mistakenly think that God's light does not dispel the darkness. And so we just don't witness. We don't evangelize. Our prayers are not hot and heavy and passionate towards praying for the loss, because maybe we don't really expect people to be saved. Maybe we don't expect those who now walk in darkness to, to once walk in the light. But brothers and sisters, if anybody understands this, it ought to be us as Reformed folks to understand God's electing grace and to understand that there are those who don't want anything to do with God. But God also works in the hearts of many others to save them. And, and because because there are those whose hearts are hardened, it explains why some of our family members scorn our commitment to Jesus Christ. And it explains why there's so much resistance to Christian truth on college campuses. And it explains why our country is increasingly becoming more united in their opposition to Christianity. This is the very thing that Jesus came to do to reveal, reveal the true inward condition of every heart whether faith or unbelief. And, and I want to say to us, even in the church, we can sometimes put our confidence in the fact that we have prayed a prayer. Maybe we put our confidence in the fact that we've sat before the elders and they have heard our testimony 
and they say, I, as best I can tell, you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we put our faith and trust in those things. But, but God tells us that someone who has been changed by the Holy Spirit continues to see the sin of their heart and continues to walk in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's where you are today, then rejoice because there's nothing in you that would make you want to do that. But there are some who profess that faith in Jesus Christ, but their life doesn't demonstrate it at all. You know, one of the things that we do when we come to the Lord's table is we fence the table. We say, if you are living in known sin, in rebellious sin against the Lord, where you say, I'm a Christian, but you are living in sin contrary to God's word, and someone comes to you and tells you about that, and you say, yeah, I'm good, I don't need to do anything about that, then you need not to take the Lord's table because what you're saying, in essence, is, is that Jesus is not powerful enough to truly save and to change a heart. Your duplicity is contrary to the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes to expose that heart and to show us if we truly have faith in Him and we are trusting in Him. And, and when we come and we share the gospel with Jesus Christ, when, when people are opposed to to, to Christianity, it's because they are opposed to Jesus Christ. So whatever opposition we might face uh, as we go to share the gospel with others is a sign that he is truly present in us. Because they're not angry with us. They are angry with Jesus. So as we come this morning to the table, as we, as we consider Simeon's song, my question is, is what's your response to Jesus? Are you for him or are you against him? Will Jesus raise you up or will you fall? This is a great question of life and death because what God will do with us for all eternity depends on what we do with Jesus right now. In one sense, he's that great divide. God uses the cross oftentimes to reveal our true char character. Uh, working out his eternal decrees of election and reprobation. I mean, he calls us to come and to die to ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. And in that, oftentimes we see the true condition of our heart of whether we're willing to follow him no matter what. Or whether we say, yeah, Jesus, I, I, you know, it's just like the crowds. You know, when Jesus says that my body is the bread they're just like, yeah, we can't go that far, Jesus. And they all walked away and they left him. Is that where our hearts are today? There is no neutrality with Jesus. Either we are with Jesus and, or we are against him. And if we are against him, brothers and sisters, we will fall down to spiritual death, down to physical death, and even down to hell itself forever. But Luke tells us, he tells us this so that we will come to faith in Jesus Christ and that we will follow Jesus, not following, but that Jesus may raise us up. And as, as Jesus said, you know, that uh, if you are ashamed to proclaim me before the world, I'll be ashamed to proclaim you before the Father. But if we 
come before him because we believe in him by faith and he works in us and we proclaim him to the world, he will say, well done, that good and faithful servant. So my question is, where do you stand today? Where are you in regards to Jesus? Are you for him or are you against him? There's no middle ground. Let's pray. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, we thank you for your word that you give to us. And we pray that as the holy, sovereign surgeon who really, truly sees our hearts for what it is, that you would show us our hearts. And that, Lord, for any that are not with you today, God, that you might bring the conviction of your Holy Spirit upon them. That they may know you, that they may turn to, that they may repent of their sins and turn to you and know you. And God, I know that if they have already confessed faith in you, Lord, if they are members of your church, that could be hard to do, to confess that maybe their heart has not been where it ought to. But please give them grace that they could do that. And they could understand the joy of them walking with you as you walk with them. Father, I do thank you, though, Lord, that you have worked in so many lives and hearts of people here in this room today. And God, if you've done so, Lord, may we rejoice that for some unknown reason to us, you have set your grace upon us that you may raise us up. Even though, Lord, we know the stain of our guilt and the shame of our sin. And we know that we are not worthy. May we Rejoice in you that you have made us righteous in your sight as you have fulfilled the law on our behalf. We thank you, Lord, and pray this in your name. Amen.